my name is Jim Fickert. I am a pastor of Communion Church in Mount Vernon. Uh, Communion Church is one of the three-strand churches, so if you guys didn't already know that, you're part of the three-strand network, um, uh, united with some other churches uh, throughout the Pacific Northwest, and so we are one of those churches. Um, I was joking earlier that um, most of the people from Seattle think of everything north of Linwood as just kind of, you know, South Alaska. Um, but, you know, Mount Vernon does kind of have its own charm, I promise. Um, it's nice. Uh, but it's great for me to be here, and um, uh, specifically here at Anchor Church, because uh, our church and Three Strand as a whole has been praying for your church um, uh, pretty consistently for the last year, and I want you to know that. Uh, we've been praying for Thaddeus, we've been praying for the Pack family, and um, um, actually been praying for some of you here specifically, as Andrew has kind of told us all the different things that are happening in the church. And so um, it's like one of those things where you have uh, prayed about something, you've thought about it, you've imagined what it's like, and then you actually get to go and meet the people um, who you've already created a total characterization of. So um, see if how correct you are in that. Um, so it's great to be here, and um, I just want you to know that one of the things that I have been praying for specifically for Anchor Church is um, that God guides you through basically living in an urban landscape, um, being a Christian in a changing urban landscape. Uh, Seattle is not an easy place to be a Christian. I'm preaching to the choir here. You already know this. Um, Seattle is a place that desperately needs image bearers. And so today I'm going to preach from uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you grab your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter chapter 1, um, verses 6 through 12. Uh, 1 Peter is a letter written to the elect exiles of the dispersion. And I tend to think of Seattleites somewhat in that way. Uh, people who belong to God but are living in a place where, where living for Him, we're actually taking that seriously, goes against the grain. And Peter is writing specifically to these people to help them understand uh, what it means to be a Christian in the world, how to navigate following God um, in, in a culture that does not share the same values. Now, the difficulty of doing this is um, that we're always being pulled in two different directions. Right? As Christians, we're always going, I want to live for God, but, but there's all these other truths that are being thrown at me. Um, and at times, this tug of war seems overwhelming. And so what we try to do is we want to bring these two things together. How can we bring the, the, the knowledge of the world and God's knowledge together? Um, and we try to do that over and over again, and they just don't fit. So Peter gives us some guidance in verses 3 through 5 of, of, of 1 Peter 1, um, looking at how we live in this time that, that, that basically is described as the now but not yet. That is, the kingdom of God has been established. Jesus has had victory over all sin, over suffering, over death. But that victory has not been fully applied to the world. We are a people who are still awaiting the full redemption of all things. But what he's calling us to do is live now in light of the not yet. Now, in order to do that, everything is not going to fit together. In order to do that, we're going to have to live in tension. We can't just live for now, trying to make everything good for everyone, trying to make sure that everyone um, has as good a life as possible. And we can't just live for the not yet, holding on for eternity and waiting for this speed bump to be over. No, we're a people who live in both, and God has called us to live in both. And to, so to live both of these things out, community and holiness, righteousness and love, citizenship on earth and citizenship in heaven, 
It requires us to actually embrace this state of never being settled. It forces us to sit in the tug of war. Now, this gets even more complicated when we accept that this, this conflict is not just something out there, it's something that exists within us. We're not an unbiased character in the middle being pulled on both ends like that old cartoon with the angel on one shoulder and the demon on the other, right? Always trying to convince the character to go one way or the other. No, we're an active participant in the struggle. And so our sins and our emotions and our loves and all of these layers that are beautiful parts of, well, sin isn't beautiful, but these things that are parts of what make us human, they're also what make us unsettled. And so we are effectively, on a day-to-day -day basis, pulling ourselves apart. And in this unsettledness, what we all want is an answer, right? There are a lot of pastors who will give you a very simple answer. There's a lot of people in the world who will give you an answer that just makes sense of it all. The problem is it doesn't actually last. Right? We want something that's big enough to be the, the, the center, the anchor, anchor church, for all of this tension. And sadly, the thing that most people in this world find, the biggest thing, the thing that's able to shift how they see the world, is suffering. Because there's nothing more powerful in this temporal life than suffering. And it's the reason why evil and injustice are usually used as reasons to um, deny God. And so today we're going to look at the role that suffering plays in the plan of God, what happens when we allow it to become the center of our understanding, and what we can do to use our suffering for good. So 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 6, before we jump in, I'm just going to pray for us. If you bow with me. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, we thank you that as we struggle through trying to figure out what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to live in this tension, that you have not left us alone. Um, so we just pray as we open up your word, as we, as we dig in, that you, would, um, that you would give us clarity, that you would open our eyes to things we have not seen before. Uh, just help us to understand you better today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 6, it says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So as I said, Peter is writing to a specific people, a people who are in the midst of oppression, um, but it's a situation that's about to get much worse. Uh, within five years of him uh, writing this, uh, Jerusalem, well, he'll be crucified upside down first within five years, and then ten years, Jerusalem itself will be destroyed. And so the Jewish people are, are entering into a time of full-scale persecution. Um, he's preparing the Christians then to be ready for what is coming. And he doesn't just call them to buck up. He doesn't just try to strengthen them. What he actually calls them to do first is to rejoice. Because Peter knows that while pain and suffering is this powerful, powerful motivator, love and joy can be as equally powerful. And the truth is the bad things in this life, the difficulties we face, can only ever be overcome with something equally or greater uh, in the realm of good. 
And so we can't escape the struggle of this life, but what we can do and what God gives us the ability to do through Jesus is face up to it in hope. And so as Peter begins here saying, in this you rejoice, he's referring to basically what he's set up in the first five verses of 1 Peter 1, which is your hope is rooted in salvation, purchased by Jesus, held for us in heaven, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And so he builds this hope, and then he stands in this pool of hope to address the issue of suffering. And so the first question we need to ask whenever we're talking about suffering is, is what is the suffering that, that Peter is talking about here? What should we think of as suffering? Now, this is the point at which I pull out the slideshow of children, you know, malnourished in Africa, and how people all over the world have it way worse than you do. Um, no, I'm not going to do that. I think that, that that has its place. There might be some truth there, but, but well, it's true that we don't understand suffering like other people do, right? We have our first world problems. Um, I don't think it's actually all that helpful to downplay the very real suffering that all of us are going through on a daily basis. I think it is effective in creating shame. It is effective in creating guilt. Um, it is effective in creating uh, an internal anxiety in us of, man, I'm not actually dealing with that much. Why can't I get over it? Because the reality is it's, it's, it's not a little thing to you. I came to this conclusion in high school. Um, I was broken up over the fact that the girl that I liked liked one of my friends. This is a very cliche story, but it's actually true. Um, so she would come to me to talk about her crush on him, right? Friend zone. Like, yeah. And um, I kept listening. I kept showing up, hoping that, that she would notice, right, while she's talking about him, somebody is actually showing up to listen, um, that I could sway her. But the reality is that over time, this just became very torturous to me. Um, every time I entered into this, I left more frustrated than the time before. And I had all of these wiser, older people speaking into my life and telling me, um, you know, it's just a high school crush. Stop, stop putting so much into it. Now, in many ways, they were right. Um, that's why they're older and wiser. But it killed me that in the process of trying to help me, they belittled the struggle that I was in, right? This idea of it's just a high school crush. Because the truth is, it was a lot more than that to me. And here's the thing, while it's easy for people outside of a situation to see it in proportion, I didn't have the ability to do that. And so while perspective can be helpful, while opening your eyes to the reality of what else is, is out there um, can, can help you to understand that other people are suffering worse, it doesn't actually help you in the midst of your suffering. Right? This reality that it could be worse doesn't help you with what is. My point being this, we all suffer to various degrees. And this is because, simply put, we live in a sinful world. Sometimes we're, sin, we're, we're suffering because of the sin of other people. Sometimes we're suffering because of our own sin. But Peter is not here to, to validate or invalidate your pain. He's coming here to help you see that you are suffering. To stop pretending that everything is fine. He wants you to admit that you are in over your head. That you can't do this on your own. Even if you're 
Suffering is small in comparison to other people. And so in this brokenness, in this struggle that we're all in, as we desire things to be better than what they are, Peter gives us an idea of how our pain can help us to get there. He says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. He says, God uses your suffering to test you. All right, be careful here. Lots of people take that and go crazy. Let me start with what this cannot mean because of what we know about God. Um, the first thing that God testing us cannot mean is it cannot mean that he is trying to see if we're good enough. Once again, the first five verses clearly lay out the fact that we are not good enough. God already knows that. Any testing he's doing is so that we can see what he already knows. Second thing it can't mean is it can't mean that God created suffering for the sake of testing us. Because all suffering is a direct result of sin. The reason why suffering exists is because people disobeyed God. And so God set up the situation in which suffering could happen by giving us the ability to sin, but he is not the author of your pain. Third thing it can't mean is it can't mean that the result of God's testing is simple. Right? Our struggle in this world is deep. It's layered. We have insecurities and identity issues. We have addictions and health problems. We have ulcers and OCD. We have trouble finding jobs and we're getting priced out of our neighborhood. I threw that one in there for you guys here. Right? Some of you are suffering through all of the above. If God is going to allow all of that, if our loving and good God is going to create a world that allows for that to be even a possibility, his reason for allowing it has got to be big. And I would argue so big that it's beyond our ability to fully understand. Now I say that as a caveat as we're about to go into some of the reasons that Peter gives us for this um, that if what you're looking for is a foolproof argument of, of uh, God is going to make sense of every single little thing that's ever happened to me, you're not going to find it. I don't have that answer for you. But I trust that Jesus does. And this is what we see about how God uses suffering. He actually uses it not to give us every answer so that we can take our answers and go live life without him. He gives us enough so that we are drawn back to him. And so the testing that Peter's talking about here is not a pass-fail endeavor. Um, instead, it's the kind of testing that athletes do in training. Right? Olympics are coming up. Hopefully, they can get their act together in Rio. As we sit on our couches watching very talented people do things, as we um, evaluate their performance, what we're doing is we're watching the culmination of hours upon hours upon hours upon hours upon hours of training. Right? As you watch a gymnast about the size of my right leg flip across the floor, they didn't just wake up one morning able to do that. Right? My kids right now, my little girls are in gymnastics. Right? right now, it's not all that impressive. They're doing stretches. They're doing little pencil jumps or popsicle jumps or whatever they're called. Right? You start there. Then you move on to the... the Backflip. Finally, you can do a backflip. That's awesome, but your form is horrible. Then you learn how to do it where you can keep your feet together, and it gets better and better and better. 
So what we see when we watch the Olympics is the result of many, many, many tests. And so tests are not just a means of pass-fail, they're a way to figure out where work is needed. The analogy that Peter uses here is gold refined by fire. Now, I don't know how gold is refined these days. I'm sure it's a very manufactured process. But, but back in the day, they'd basically put that stuff in a bowl and they'd heat it up. Right? And in the process of, of melting the gold, um, um, the melting temperature of gold is different than some other metals. And so those metals would separate. Um, some of them would all melt, but because of the density, they would separate. Some stuff would just get burnt up in the process. It's the same with God's testing. There are certain things that in the process of this life and our experiences and our suffering, they just get burnt up, right? Stuff you used to struggle with that God just took away through your experience. Praise Jesus. But it's not all that way. It doesn't all just go away. Some of it, God heats that kettle up and he allows us to see what's the gold and what needs to be skimmed off the top. Some work needs to be done. God makes our sin known to us so that we can see it, so that we can do the work of refining. James makes this our same connection for us in the first chapter of his epistles, where he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right? Trials, then, develop strength. Back to the athlete analogy again. Um, because it's, it's more than just making us holy. It's about purifying us from unrighteousness. And testing is a means of developing trust in the righteousness that we've been given. Here's what I mean. That gymnast flipping across the floor. right? It's not just that they have to learn better form. They also have to learn how to trust their body. Right? One of the things that I love with my kids is when you put them into a situation where they have to try something they've never tried before. Right? Go ahead, jump off the stage, and you'll see them go, right? They'll kind of like, like they, get all, they, they step back, they get the courage for it, and as soon as they get to the edge, they, they chicken. The trust isn't there. It takes some time. You have to do it once, and then you go, I can do it, and then they're up here, and you can't make them stop. And you know. But going through something over and over and over and over again develops a confidence that the next time is going to be the same. Once again, the same is with us. The continued process of suffering where we take our, our struggles to God and then we see him as the means of salvation, of redemption. It develops in us a track record of God's faithfulness. It's why for Israel, he had them constantly setting up memorials. Remember what I did. Remember what I did. Remember what I did. Because the next time you face something, it's going to seem overwhelming until you remember what I did. So the next thing we're up against, even though we don't quite know what, how we're going to, to overcome it, we have the ability now that's been developed to trust God, who was there before, and the time before that, and the time before that. And so our steadfastness comes not only from the strength that God is developing in us, but the strength that comes from a deeper trust in Him. And this is really the, the bigger piece of what God is doing. He's not just developing steadfastness so that we can imagine ourselves as stronger. Because he's preparing us for eternity. And in eternity, we are not going to need the strength to survive pain. Because pain will be no more. Suffering will be no more. 
And so the greater goal here, what God is really pushing us towards, is our love and our trust and our dependence on him, which will be there in eternity. God works through suffering then to introduce his glory to us, to help us see him for who he truly is. And that's what Peter says of our suffering here. He says that your suffering may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says here, your suffering can bring glory to God. And it brings him glory as it becomes part of our understanding of God's grace. Now, it might seem really odd to call suffering part of God's grace uh, to us, but this is because we have a higher opinion of ourselves than we should. We imagine that, that if God left us to ourselves, we would eventually find our way to him. Um, that if he just got the, the stuff out of the way, that we would find him. Right? This is a popular thing in Christian thought, right? Stop with all the do-nots of Christianity and just show us the good. If you show us the good, we would come to God. Okay? Here's my question. How much beauty would God have to show you before you would come to him? Sunsets and beautiful lakes, mountains, is that enough? Miracle of childbirth, is that enough? We actually get to experience God's grace and beauty on a daily basis, and it's pretty clear in this world, it's not enough. It's not enough to overcome our selfishness. Right? Take the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. They were given everything. Relationship with God. A beautiful garden that produced everything they needed. They were naked and unashamed, for goodness sake. When it came to trusting God, though, this was not enough. They still said there might be something else out there. They had to touch the fire to see if it was hot. And so we see they suffered shame and guilt, and they hid from God. God comes to them. He tells them, this is the result of your sin. And then at the end of Genesis 3, he does something um, that is amazing. Right after he basically says, these are the consequences that are coming, he says this. This is verse 20 of Genesis 3. It says, the man called his wife's name Eve uh, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said to them, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take um, also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That one's left out of a lot of the children's books. But two things that God does here, right? After these people have destroyed the beautiful world that he created, the first thing he does is he clothes them. Now that's interesting because that wasn't what God intended. Right? I mean, in the state that he created them, in perfection, that was not something that was necessary. But he looks at the world, he looks at where they are, and he said, because of what you've created, I'm going to, to love you. I'm going to show you great. I'm going to soothe your suffering in the mess you created. He doesn't just hold an ideal over their heads. He recognizes where they are, and he meets them there. That is beautiful. Second thing God does, it says he kicks them out of the garden. Doesn't seem quite as beautiful. Um, 
But it says specifically here, he does it so they can't eat from the tree of life. So they can't live forever in the state that they have created for themselves. Basically, God keeps the suffering of this life limited. We always have the relief of death to free us from the suffering of life. Now, that's only good if there's something better on the other side. So God takes Adam and Eve out of this idyllic environment of the garden so they can experience the brokenness of the world so that they will come to him so that they have a future that's better than the present. Their suffering illuminated both the good that had already existed and the need for salvation from the bad that they had created. And their new reality brought an understanding of God's goodness that was lacking, right? They didn't understand his goodness when all they had was his goodness. See, God could have set up what Christian culture likes to call a hedge of protection around the garden, right? Some way to guard out all the bad, to block out anything from ever happening. But would that have brought about a deep love and a need for him? Would that have brought them to recognizing his goodness? No. And so what we see is that God cares more about a love for him than he does about an ease for us. That's not easy. I read an article this last week that claimed that ease would have been the cruelest thing that God could have done. Here's what it says. Leaving them in the ideal situation would have been the real curse. That would be like the captain of a sinking cruise ship deciding to make the passengers as comfortable as possible while the ship goes down, rather than disturbing their peaceful existence with blaring alarms and screaming people. I don't know about you, but if the ship is going down, I want someone to upset me. Or it's like a person with a terminal illness. That illness probably has all kinds of symptoms, signs that something is not right within the body. But the symptoms themselves are not the real problem. They can be rather unpleasant, even awful, but they're symptoms of a deeper problem. They're what are alarming us to the fact that something else is going on. And so what we see is, is one of the reasons God allows suffering is so that we don't stay in the dark. Rather than keeping his people from the results of their sin, God lets us sit in the disturbing reality of it. He lets us see that there's a problem. But then once we see that there's a problem, he doesn't just leave us there to pick up the pieces. He doesn't say, you, bet you made your bed, now sleep in it. No, God cares for us in the midst, and he promises us that he will be there to save us. And so suffering is the track record of God's concern and the reminder that we need redemption. He promises us peace, just not yet, right? Though now for a little while, you may suffer. Which is exactly how Jesus put it in John 16 before he left his disciples, where he said, I have these, said these things to you that in me you will have peace, in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. All this to say, if this world if God created this world for our enjoyment, for us to have a good life, to enjoy our time while we are here, then God has failed us. And that's the way a lot of people look at it. If there's a good God, then we should have a good life. The fact that I don't have a good life means God is not good. Because he let us have pain. But if his purposes are for our eternal good, for us to learn what we need to learn, for us to love what we need to love, then maybe suffering is just what we need. 
Maybe God actually knows what he's doing when he allows us to experience life without the fullness of his grace. As a much more eloquent pastor than I said it, the world that best displays the glory of God is the world that we have. A world that was allowed to fall, a world that was redeemed, and a world that will be restored to its original perfection. God wants his people to see him and love him. His creation in its beauty, in its fall, and in its restoration is the way that we come to grips with who God is. In all of that tension. Peter explains this to us in verse 8. He says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so this process this refining and developing trust through grace and suffering, it prepares us to be able to love God, to see joy in Him. Because you can't make people love God. I have lots of conversations with people about God. Right? I talk to, it's always funny when people find out you're a pastor and they're like, oh, I got a beef. Okay. Um, right? Where a lot of these questions are, are, th are things like, I've been thinking about this, and they're kind of challenges uh, to God. Some of them are whether or not Christianity or religion is responsible for all the injustice in the world. Right? I have these conversations. I'm willing to discuss these things, but the reality is, even if I have a better argument, and I'd like to think I usually do, um, it won't produce love. At best, I can get people to see that their worldview is, is inconsistent or lacking, that they might not understand uh, all that they think that they know about the Bible. But to get to the point of actually loving God, especially in a world that has evil and suffering, you have to believe that he's bigger than the problem. Now, this is easier when the suffering we're talking about is high school girlfriends and first world problems and sinking ships. It's a lot harder when we're talking about terminal illnesses, divorce, death. Right? It gets even deeper when we delve into the darkest and most terrible aspects of this world. One of the guys from my church is a, a fireman on Capitol Hill. Right? Man, the stories that guy has. Right? Some of you probably have jobs where you have seen just the darker side of the world. Some of you have gone to third world countries and seen poverty and pain in ways that you previously didn't know it existed. Some of you have probably suffered through abuse of various forms. And in the face of that kind of suffering, we think there cannot be an explanation. This is too big. This is too bad. This is too much to ever be able to be overcome. And I would agree with that. One little caveat. I would say it's too big and it's too much and it's too great for us. This is why we, we, we hook our hope to Jesus. To trust in what we can't see. To hope in what we don't fully know. Because our ability to put the pieces together has a limit. And if you stop Jesus at your limit then the suffering will always send you to despair. Suffering will become the most powerful truth. And it's why God gave us the gospel. Right? In the gospel, Jesus gives us something much more powerful. In the gospel, we get this picture of how God can use the worst of human sin and suffering. Can use it to produce good. 
Because as Jesus is convicted and beaten and killed at the hands of selfish people, we see it's his death that allows those people to have hope. Those same people. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. One of the more powerful statements in the whole Bible. And so Peter ends this description uh, with a description of our faith, how our hope in God's possibilities, how a focus on the gospel can turn suffering into glory. Verse 10, this is what he says. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And so Peter attaches the kind of hope that we have to have to the hope of the Old Testament saints for the Messiah. Right? All of those who trusted God in the Old Testament had, had a concept of Jesus. Veiled prophecies, shadows displayed through ceremonial laws. But those, those shadows were insufficient to answer all of their questions. Right? They didn't have all of the pieces put together. I mean, if you put yourself in their shoes, they're trying to make sense of God with very few details. And yet, through the Old Testament, you see people who had faith. And you see God unfold the revelation of himself through these people, event by event, salvation by salvation. And so God goes about telling his story, who he is, through words and through history. Right, we get an idea of who God is from the Word. Exodus 34, 6, God declares His name. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Sounds wonderful. What does that mean for my life? Right? I mean, if that just stays as some sort of like plaque you put on your wall, well, it stays as a plaque that sits on your wall. But God wants that to bleed out into your life. And it's through the struggles of this life that God applies that truth where we see who he is. And so God roots his character through pain, through suffering, through salvation, through redemption. And once that character and his nature is rooted in us, it gives us the hope to face things we don't understand and to trust in his purpose when we cannot connect the dots. And the reality is, that's the definition of faith that we're given in Hebrews chapter 11. Right? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it the people of old received the commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. All of this to say, when it comes to our suffering, there's a lot we're never going to be able to make right in the world and in our minds. But there are some things that God gives us, some things that he says, trust in this, hope in this. Number one, the fact that God allows suffering means he has a greater purpose for it. God would not allow something if he didn't have a reason. Number two, the fact that he loves us means that purpose is good. Maybe not good as we define it, but good as God defines it, which is better. Right? Number three, God's good is often different from ours. Number four, God's good is better. Jump the gun there. Number five, as we await that good, 
He is with us in the midst of the pain. Right? God knows our suffering. Jesus has experienced our suffering. And here's the thing that I just rest in. God hates suffering more than we do. Right? Think about that. God hates our suffering more than we do. It's his creation that has been destroyed. It's his glory that has been ignored. It's his son who had to die to make it right. And so rather than trying to make sense of it all, and I say this because that's a very Northwest thing to do, right? I'm going to go out to the woods and I'm going to ponder this for a while. I'm going to sit in all of the... Rather than allowing that to overwhelm you, what God gives us is the opportunity to come to him to bring all of our suffering to the foot of the cross. And this is why we come to church every Sunday, to share communion, to be reminded that because of the work of Jesus, that once and for all sacrifice, sacrifice that came through suffering and pain, we can approach him honestly. We can approach God honestly. We don't have to set our humanity aside and get in our church mode and put in our church voices We can approach him honestly in our pain, and he will comfort us. And so we don't have to have the answer. Jesus has it, and he promised us that he will share it with us. So come to him. And so I'm just going to end with his promise out of Hebrews chapter 4. Here's what it says. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Would you pray with me? And then we'll, uh, we'll sing and have communion. Father, we thank you. Uh, we thank you so much that, um, that you're not willing to leave us to ourselves that you're not willing to leave us in our pain, that you're not willing to leave us or forsake us. Um, There is not a greater promise than the promise that you make in the Great Commission, that you will be with us always to the very end of the age. And um, we all admit that we uh, we don't like this life sometimes. Uh, We don't like the situations that we're in. We don't like how our decisions have affected us. We don't like the people sometimes that you've put in our lives. Uh, Father, life is hard. And yet we thank you that we have this constant reminder in all of those things of our need for you. Um, And I pray that we would uh, be strengthened uh, in in just the hope um, and the knowledge of of the fact that you will use these things to grow our love. Uh, It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Don't cut me off. All right. I'm going to introduce communion real quick. Uh, This time we're going to take communion. The church that I am pastor of is called Communion Church, so you can imagine communion is a very uh, important uh, piece. It's the sacrament given to us by Jesus, and really what I think is the most beautiful thing is it's this reenactment of our conversion, um, that weekly reminder that we bring our sinful humanity to him. That's all we have, uh, and he gives us his perfection. And so as we talk about suffering, um, just take some time um, to really think about what are the things that, that stand there that I'm frustrated with. Uh, bring those things to God, lay it before him, and then pick up that bread, the reminder that Jesus came um, and shed um, his body, dip it in his blood to be reminded of the fact that his good is greater.